I could think of no greater song to sing in a situation like this, in a day like this, than to declare as a church that we need Jesus. We need Jesus today. I was planning on this sermon today kind of being a little bit different. On Monday, I was preparing for a little bit more of a celebratory kind of sermon. But I felt like with the things that have happened, I kind of needed to pivot. Because truthfully, and and I'm going to be real with you and how I'm feeling today, because I believe scripture gives us the green light on being real with how we're feeling, being real with God, being able to voice any frustrations and heartache and whatever it is that's going on. But this week, I have felt sick. I have felt sick all week. I have felt heartbroken. I have felt angry. I'm angry that things like this keep happening. I'm angry that the number one cause of death and for children in this country is guns. Like, what world are we living in? I'm angry that parents are going to have to bury their children. Pick out a casket for their kids. And I'm full of sorrow and, and anguish for those families. I can't imagine what they're going through right now. And I I know that there are people in this church that have connections to families of the victims. I can't imagine being a parent in this situation and knowing that your child's never going to walk through that door again. That they're not going to be in their room anymore. You're not going to hear them laugh again. I can't imagine the deep despair that people are feeling today. And I know situations like this, they have potential to be faith shakers. It can make people doubt and question their faith. Make people doubt and question God. But I believe, and whatever your theology is, you can disagree with me, but I believe that God did not make this happen. I believe That God is weeping. I believe that God is angry with us. I believe that he is near to the brokenhearted. And today I am grateful that we serve a God of justice. That we serve a God that does not let evil off the hook. That we serve a God that is going to ultimately make everything right. And I believe that the spirit in all of creation is groaning today. We are groaning for the restoration of all things. We are groaning as we are crying out, Jesus, come quickly. But yet we can ask why. Why does this happen? Why does God allow this to happen? And those are good questions. And I don't think today I can give any satisfying answer whatsoever to that. Particularly in times of deep grief, what can you possibly say to families who are going through what they're going through? And I know a lot of people are wondering what they can do to help. 
and there's a lot of different things we can do to help. I think our first response is always needs to be prayer. Because prayer is powerful because we serve a powerful God. And a God that has a heart for this whole world. So much so that he gave his only son. That's how much he loves this world. So yes, prayer is vitally important right now. But along with prayer, I know there have been suggestions for other action. I know some people think we need to call an account for our leaders to maybe come up with a solution to stop letting this thing keep happening. I know for some people, uh, one action step we might take is we can give. I know there's a lot of different GoFundMes or groups that are trying to help out Covenant Presbyterian or help out the families that have been hurt. But I do know this, all of us need to be a good neighbor. Today in Nashville, there is deep grief. There are people right now, probably in this room, that are inwardly crying out, asking and hoping for someone to notice them and care enough about them to be kind to them. There's a lot of darkness in this world, and this reminds us we have no idea what people are going through. So we need to be full of kindness and empathy and compassion and be generous with our kindness for other people because this world is grieving. And I know there have been so many suggestions, so many solutions as to something that we can do to maybe help this. And you know what? Maybe to some degree, some change in some gun law might help a little bit. Maybe to some degree, having an officer stationed in every school might help to some extent. Maybe not broadcasting the shooter's name all over the news constantly would help to some extent. But in my opinion, all of those are Band-Aid fixes. In my opinion, this world needs Jesus. More than anything else, we need Jesus right now. Our hope is not in the institutions of this world. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. So may we be Jesus for this community this week. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we come before you frustrated and heartbroken. And we pray that you lift up everybody who's been affected by this senseless act of evil. I pray that you be with those families who are deep in grief. I pray that you comfort them, that you surround them, that you wrap your arms around them so tightly and do not let go. Lord, help us be a church that is a shining light on a hill. Help us to be known for our love, to be known for our kindness, Help us to see our neighbors and empathize and seek to help them in whatever way we can. Help us to be a good neighbor. And Lord, come quickly. Please, Lord, come quickly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've heard a lot of people in the news talk about how on earth are we going to celebrate Holy Week, given what's happened this week, and I get that impulse because for the first 
two days after this, I was just staring at a blank page, like, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, but honestly, as I kept studying, looking more into Palm Sunday, I think this might be one of the most fitting topics we could possibly talk about today. So if you would, turn with me to Luke 19. We're going to begin in verse 28. In verse 28, it says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, we know this is called Holy Week because this is where he spent the last week of his life in Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at a hill called the Mount of Olives, which is all just east of Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So, first of all, we see that this is a demonstration that Jesus is in control of what's happening. He's saying, go do this, and this is going to happen exactly this way. And then in verse 32, we see that it does. It says, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as, they had told, or as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. So I don't think what's going on here is the disciples are just robbing a random person of their young donkey. I think what's happening in this situation is the owner of these animals is a sympathizer of Jesus. They would have already had to have had a relationship to some degree because if they said the Lord needs it, that would mean nothing if you don't have any context as to, you know, why are you saying that statement? So... I'm guessing that he already is a sympathizer of Jesus or else that explanation wouldn't have been good enough to just give someone random your animal. And also the why are you untying the colt question, I don't think that's because they just went up and started taking it without asking. I think it's more of a shock. Why are you taking this animal specifically as opposed to another one that's way easier and much smoother of a ride? But they were obedient and got Jesus this colt specifically. It says in verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So let's break down what's happening here, okay? Try to imagine this scene. So there's a pretty big crowd here present. A lot of disciples who are celebrating. There are some Pharisees who are very much so not. And there's also a lot of bystanders, I would imagine, because this is the week where people are celebrating Passover. So there's probably a lot of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for this week, so I would guess there was a pretty big crowd. And we see this information of people putting cloaks on the donkey that Jesus was riding and laying them on the ground. What is that all about? So that's actually a sign of honor, of deference. And it's associated with royalty in scripture. For example, if you go to 2 Kings 9 verse 13, so as Jehu is being anointed king over Israel, we see this response. It says, they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. A response like this is one of royalty. 
It's almost like laying out the red carpet. That might be a modern day metaphor for what's happening right here. And a detail that's interesting that's missing in Luke's account is there's no mention of palm branches anywhere. Why would he leave that out specifically? Well, it's thought that Luke is primarily talking to a Gentile audience, and this would not have been as impactful if he included that, that detail specifically. Because this, for a Jew, it symbolized victory and peace. It was actually a callback to the Maccabean revolt, which happened about 180 years before this point. And what happened in that situation is the Jews won their independence over the Greeks, and afterwards they would chop off the palm branches of palm trees, and they would walk around in a sort of victory parade with these palm branches. It kind of symbolized independence, revolution, and victory. So this kind of goes to show what some of their expectation of the Messiah would be to bring palm branches to this entry point. They were expecting quite a revolt from Jesus. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more in a second. But there's more significance with him riding a young donkey into Jerusalem, and that's related to the fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 9. So Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is a messianic prophecy that is illustrating a king is going to come into Jerusalem riding a young donkey, but not for revolt, not for war, but to bring peace to the whole world and to be the king of the world. How beautiful of a picture is that? And what Jesus is doing here is he is making a public display about who he is, where at this point he has been very secretive and quiet about what he's been doing except to his disciples. He is now making a public display. Hey, the king is here. And also where it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that's a direct quote from Psalm 118. And in that context, it depicts a king leading pilgrims to the temple to receive a greeting and a welcome from the priests of the temple. So this blessing is one that is demonstrating the Lord's approval that Jesus is in fact God's anointed. And there's another reason Jesus coming in on a lowly donkey is important. So in this time, there were a lot of other triumphal entries of sorts. For example, with Rome, they would have big spectacles with their political leaders, people like Pontius Pilate, for example, he would be coming in with this big parade from time to time of a battalion of soldiers riding war horses. And what would happen in these situations is there would be people from inside the city who would go outside the city a little bit and then meet them outside the city with this big entourage and then would escort them back into the city. So that is the typical sort of triumphal entry that you would expect of this time. It's a show of power. Maybe a similar metaphor or example for today is if you're at a football game and there are like five bomber aircrafts that fly over the stadium, it's a show of force. It's a spectacle. And it's behind it, it's showing, hey, you don't want to mess with us. And that's what we're seeing with Rome as they're walking in. It's this show of force, this military might. And then you contrast that with what Jesus is doing here. He is riding in on an awkward young donkey by himself. 
no massive spectacle, wearing the common person's clothes. He is coming to Jerusalem as king, but unlike any king who has ever come before him. What you have in this moment, it creates polarization. There's different reactions, right? You see the disciples, they're celebrating, but then you have the Pharisees. How many sentences are ruined with that statement? But then you have the Pharisees. In verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because the, the Pharisees were familiar with what this passage was saying. Or what was happening in this moment. They were, were familiar with Zechariah 9 and saying, oh, this is a fulfillment of what's going on. And I do not approve of that. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is saying, all of creation realizes who I am. Even non-life knows life when they see it. This is a sort of slap in the face to the Pharisees. And we tend to see, as churches, we see Palm Sunday as a celebration, as a, a really cute event where we get to have kids come up here and we wave little palm branches, which we're going to do, so that's still going to happen. But this was not a celebration for Jesus. It may have been for other people, but in verse 41 it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. I want to take a quick second to shout out Mike Webb, who made this painting. And I think it's really interesting thinking about the perspective of Jesus as he's about to enter into the city for the first time. And what's going on behind the, the scenes of his emotions is he's weeping. He's coming into this city very distraught because in this situation, he knows that Jerusalem, a city, a group of people that he loves so much is ultimately going to turn their back on him. They are not going to accept him. People who are in that crowd who are celebrating him coming in as Messiah are going to be some of the same ones in that crowd shouting, crucify him. And in Matthew's version of this story, he compares himself to a hen. How he wishes that he could take his wings and just scoop up all of Jerusalem as his little chicks because he loves us that much. But they refuse. So you see those reactions. You see the disciples who are celebrating. You see the Pharisees who are very much so not celebrating. Maybe some of the other people in the crowd, they could have been celebrating because it was a festive time. They could have been just kind of watching because they're curious about this Jesus guy. But in my opinion, all of these reactions are misguided. Because I would argue that most of this crowd, including his disciples, had a certain expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to do at this time. They weren't welcoming him as savior. It was more of a deliverer to lead a revolt against Rome, to take Israel back to a place of power and prominence. Their hope was in the restoration of the physical nation of Israel. But Jesus was ultimately going to disappoint them. Because Jesus makes clear as he's talking to Pilate, as he's being handed over by some of that same crowd that was in this situation with the triumphal entry, he tells Pilate in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. The work of Jesus, it might overlap with the work of our governments and our nations, meaning that kingdom matters and political matters of the state may intersect sometimes. And God can certainly use nations and governments for his purposes. But the kingdom of God is focused on something different than what all the other nations are focused on. Jesus didn't come to make Israel powerful again, which is what the expectation was for the Messiah at this time. Instead, he came to save the world. The kingdom that Jesus was establishing is one that extends from sea to sea and brings peace to the nations, not just for one people. Jesus' kingdom looks completely different than what was expected of any other kingdom at this time. You want to talk about the upside-down kingdom, how about this? When kingdoms of the world wanted to make a huge spectacle of force and might, the kingdom of Jesus looked like riding in on a lowly donkey. When kingdoms of this world wanted to conquer by military conquest, the kingdom of Jesus conquers by love of God and love of neighbor. And the ultimate example of this is in the cross. This is why I think this topic is so fitting for this week, because it highlights the true hope that we have as Christians in the midst of terrible life circumstances. We can rest knowing that the kingdom that King Jesus is establishing is one that is not of this world. Our hope is not in the state, it's not in the country, it's not in the governments of this world, and I honestly mourn for people who think it does because they don't know where else to turn for solutions. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. Our hope lies with Jesus person riding in on a donkey. <laughs> all countries, all empires, all nations will rise and fall. But the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus, the spirit-empowered people of God will endure forever. And listen, I'm all about praying for people in the United States to turn to God. I pray that often. But I also pray that in conjunction with all the other nations and all the other people groups. Because our hope is not in this country. My hope is in the kingdom of Jesus that expands across the entire earth, the entire cosmos. Our kingdom is global. It's not just national. And to think otherwise, in my opinion, illustrates some level of favoritism, which God does not have. And scripture makes very, very clear. We serve the God of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We serve a God that says there is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. We are to love our brothers and sisters throughout the world as much as we love our brothers and sisters here. The kingdom is bigger than our bubble. And more than our citizenship here, we are citizens where? Heaven. That is our citizenship. We are living for a kingdom that is not of this world. Which today, I praise God for that. I thank God that our kingdom is not of this world because it's days like this. I want to sing the song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Because I am tired of seeing this evil over and over again. I'm tired of living in a broken world like this and it's just been sickening and maddening. But though I say all of that, though I want to sing that song, it's wrong. Because this world is our home. 
The kingdom may not be of this world, but the kingdom is in this world. We are living for a kingdom that is ultimately in this world. And there's a really powerful scripture that I used to preach and teach otherwise of what I'm about to say. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, this illustrates the hope that we have as Christians. It says in verse 13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Church, we do not grieve as those with no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That changes everything. And we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I find this scripture so encouraging. And, you know, I used to think, this doesn't sound a whole lot like our, our future is here, Right? doesn't sound like it's the world. It sounds like we're going to be caught up in the clouds, that that's going to be our existence to some degree. But now, after digging in a little bit more with the context, what I believe this is actually illustrating is similar to what we talked about earlier about the triumphal entry of Jesus, the triumphal entry of leaders in Rome, that idea of walking outside of the city to meet whoever that is, to escort them back in. What this is talking about is the new heaven and new earth, in my opinion. And I believe... What's happening in this situation, as Jesus is coming down, those who are still alive on earth meet him in the clouds to escort him back into earth. And this time, so this is another, as you can see, this is another triumphal entry of Jesus. This is the final triumphal entry of Jesus. And it's one that also is going to have weeping, but it's a different kind of weeping. It is a weeping of joy and celebration because God is going to make all things right. We're gonna be able to meet those kids that were killed on Monday. We're gonna be able to see them because Jesus' resurrection means that they too will be raised. And Jesus will wrap all of us up in his arms. That is the kingdom that I'm living for. That's the kingdom that I have hope in. So as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, the palms, they represent something different than what those were wanting it to mean during the time of Jesus' triumphal entry. We celebrate the victory and the triumph of our Lord over sin, over death, over the powers of evil. We celebrate that the entry of our Lord into this world means good news for the whole world. And what this means is evil will never have the last laugh because Jesus is king. There is no greater hope that we can have than to know that our kingship is with this king. A king that considers us co-heirs. A king that allows us to sit on his throne with him. All hail King Jesus. All hail King Jesus from now into eternity. Lord, 
we are so grateful that you are our king. We are grateful that your death, your resurrection means an end to all of the evil that is in this world. It means death does not have the last laugh. It means there is hope. It means there is celebration in your life. Lord, I pray that you help us to live for the kingdom of God. Help us demonstrate you to our peers. Help us to live in honor of your royalty. Because of you, Lord, we can face tomorrow. Because of you, we have a hope that doesn't make sense to other people. Because of you, we know that there can be purpose in suffering. Lord, we pray that you come quickly. We pray that your kingdom come here in this church, in this community. May you wrap all those families up with the most amount of love and comfort imaginable. Help us to be good neighbors to those around us. Lord, we celebrate you today. We celebrate your kingship. We celebrate that this kingdom is doing something different. And we all say, all hail King Jesus together this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.